Deep and meaningful conversations to connect, find calm, feel empowered and uncover clarity. Welcome to the Death Dying Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Welcome, Dr. Kylie. So good to see you. <laughs> we love to see you too, Jules. <laughs> awesome. So Dr. K is a GP, Doctor of Integrative Medicine, a scientist, owns the Centre for Health and Wellbeing in South Australia. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you today because there's not many people that have probably heard about a Doctor of Integrative Medicine. And I know when I met you, I thought it was fascinating. So I really thought that listeners might really love to hear about a GP and how a GP becomes a doctor of integrative medicine and what you do. So can you tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I am a GP, so that means I can do all the things that normal medicine does. That's normal blood tests and referrals and, you know, general practice stuff. But I call it the best of both worlds because that sits alongside all of the stuff that fits into more of a wellness model. So Normal medicine is very focused on acute problems for surgery or chronic illnesses around medicines, but they don't really fix people as far as getting us back to health. So integrative medicine is looking at using uh, all the natural approaches to help rebalance the body. So we look into more detail around what's happening with underlying what we call biochemistry or cell functions. So whether the little enzymes are working properly or not, we look at the gut with regards to the microbiome or the bacteria in the gut and whether that's in balance. We consider food intolerances, vitamin and mineral issues, hormonal balancing, and then sort of brain chemistry. So it's sort of looking at what's gone out of balance in the body and how do we correct it in a way that the body actually understands. So what the body is lacking often is nutrients or hormones. It's not lacking a medication. So it's looking at how do we get that back on track. And then overlying all of that stuff from my perspective is that mind and body sort of powerful link in that we are thinking and feeling creatures and what's happening in life has a massive impact on our health. So I'm always considering what sits behind that, like why this person and why this problem and why right now? So it's looking at all those circumstances and beliefs and uh, systems and values and stresses and those things that overlie it as well as the physical problems. So that's sort of the mind, body, spirit stuff. Mm. It's beautiful. I suppose it's a bit hard to put a percentage about how much do you think is you're born with, how much of your health is environment, how much is mind. Like, Have you got any ideas about that? Well, look, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the genetics sits sort of, the, the DNA sits there and we inherit that. But the expression of the DNA is very much about what's happening with nutrients particularly. So they affect how well we express the genes. So 10% probably genetic and then the 90% is environmental, but that would include the thoughts and feelings and the stresses as well as the physical status. So the genetics is a time fraction it helps okay. sort of point in a direction of what you're mindful of but really the the power sits in you know how does your genome expressing itself and that's impacted upon by all of those things and you get into sort of the energy medicine then even the dna can be influenced by that vibrational sort of medicine as well mm. you know the thought of having a, a doctor that also has a thorough understanding of the science 
and has the time to spend with you, I think that would be a gift if we could all have that. But I know that most GPs don't have that uh, opportunity. And I mean, I, I love what you do and I'm certainly a client of yours and you've changed my life. And that's why I've invited you on the podcast. But but since the, you know, really what we want to for the listeners is I'm thinking about people that have, might have been, you know, recently diagnosed with some sort of a life-limiting condition. You know, it could be something like motor neurone or Parkinson's or things that they might that they're going to have to live with for for sometimes decades. How would you work differently than maybe your average GP with those type of people? You know, there are things that are, I guess, what we call curable and those that, as you said, are more progressive. And so then it's sort of living well with it. So my focus is always about, you know, the person in front of me at the time, what, what is it that we can do to help their body be in better health? So even things like motor neuron disease, we can look at how do we optimise neurological function for, you know, for that time. And there are certainly things that we can do. And also, yeah, just if, if the overall health is better, then we actually feel better and cope more too. So it's always looking into things like sleep as well. Like if people aren't sleeping, it's really hard to deal with the stresses. So there's just some often some really simple measures just to try and get the rest of life in right balance. And then we've got a bit more energy and mental space and emotional capacity to deal with the, the what is and coming to terms with that. So, yeah, I guess the medicine's a part of, of that process and then the mind-body stuff is a part of, okay, well, how do we come to that place of living life well? And none of us know when we're going to go as such. And so how do we just live every day as if it counts? And what is most important? And that's nearly always for people, it's about their relationships, their connections with others. So, you know, giving people the capacity to have energy for that and to do that well, mm. bring joy back into their life despite a, a diagnosis. Yep. So really you're talking about balance and the whole person. So, you know, everything from relationships, the environment, you know, the food that you eat, the air that you breathe, like everything has an impact in your eyes, would that be correct? Yeah, that's definitely correct. And it is interesting when we work with people who have, well, when I, when I work with people who have got cancer and, you know, I would be considering all of those things, you know, that, that what sort of water are they drinking? Is their body mm. alkaline acidic? Are they nutrient, you know, having supplements that work for them? They're antioxidants. But in, including that, you know, the meditation and their connection and their joy and all that, it's all a part of it. And uh, having the capacity to sort of um, encourage them to go down that path of balancing everything out, yeah. Yeah, I love that because I, I really think that the joy is a big part of that. And I suppose, you know, when you've been diagnosed with something that you see as terminal, then, you know, how do you bring the joy back in? And I suppose it sounds like it's a process of being uh, finding the best path forward given the circumstances that you're in. Yeah, well, that's that's right. I mean, it's a journey for everybody, isn't it? I mean, it's a journey for us whether we've got a life-limiting illness or not, really, mm, isn't yeah. it? It just brings it into sharp focus once you've had something that is either life-limiting or the potential for it. And a lot of people do, you know, particularly around cancers, might in fact be diagnosed and then have treatment and recover. Yes. And yet there's still yes. that profound, you know, wake-up call, if you like, of, you know, how do I make my life count? How do I make meaning, you know, be real for me? Yeah, but as I said, that's a that's a journey for all of us. But there's certainly a sharp relief when <laughs> we have to focus on it with that sort of more urgency, or because it is in fact life limiting. So yeah, I guess the finding joy in life is is 
it's a bit of a discipline too, you know, like mm. it's something you've got to look at. It's, it's a product of effort, if you like, as far as looking at, you know, what, what is it that, you know, connects me? And for people, it's nature, it's um, their pets, it's their family, it's their friends, it's things like music. You know, there's things that transport us, aren't there, you know? So it's learning, yep. you know, yeah. not even learning. We kind of know. It's just sitting quietly and going, what is it that really makes me feel alive? And how do I have more of that? Have you ever thought about how you'd like to spend the last few days and hours of your life? Or how you'd like to acknowledge loved ones or your own life and death? We can help you to create an experience that's as individual as you are. Let us help. DoulaConnections.com.au If you, you know, with some of your clients that really are getting towards a, that terminal stage, you know, the end weeks or days, sometimes months, I suppose, of life, then... What sort of things could you be advising or su- suggesting that they might look at to help them be able to to manage that, as I say, that part or that journey towards the end there? Like what strategies and tips would you offer people? So the physical wellness side of it is a part of it. I mean, most people's fear is not even the dying, it's the pain or it's the suffering that goes with that. So it's not so much even the end process. So it's just reassuring them that we've got ways of looking after that side of things so that they don't need to be in pain. There are very good medications for that, but there's also the, you know, the newer stuff with the medicinal cannabis that can be quite effective too. There's two components to that, one called CBD and one called THC. They do sort of different things in a setting of terminal illnesses. We can talk more about that if people want to know, but the point is that there are ways to manage the pain and I always say that we just have to keep on asking. If it's not meeting a need, then let us know. So if we can sort of remove that fear and then I think the other thing is that most people are not even worried for themselves at the end. It's worried about those they're leaving behind. I did hear that saying the other day about, you know, grief is the price we pay for love and that's so true, isn't it? It's those left behind who loved us that uh doing the grieving so for a lot of people they just want to know that their loved ones are going to be okay and so sometimes it's practical stuff around looking at medical power of attorneys and making sure their end of life affairs are in order so that their loved ones are looked after in that sense they don't have to spend too much time and energy on that side of things if somebody's too unwell to do that stuff then so be it there's no drama but if there's a preparation then we can look at you know let's dot the i's and cross the t's so that bit's done I'd also say to family members that, you know, the the point with all of this is to have quality time together. And I really advocate for the family getting other people in to do the caring roles as far as the the general care so that the physical needs are looked after as far as if they need help with, you know, showering and, you know, um, general day-to-day care. So the, the family members just have the quality time. They're not running around doing the shopping and the cleaning and the bills and all that stuff. You know, it might have to happen, but if possible, hand some of that stuff over so that you just mm. go and sit there and reminisce about, you know, some lovely times together or you might listen to some audio books together and then discuss things or, you know, it's, it's time to just be in the moment together and have those really special times because that's what truly moves us deeply and that's what connects us profoundly and that's the stuff that we can then rely on when we're having our sad times. Yep. That's beautiful, Kylie. So have you heard of an end-of-life doula and and what are your thoughts about people being able to die at home in 
familiar surroundings. So is that doable for most of Australia's population? Because most people would die in aged care or in a hospital. But do you believe that with good care and good supports around you, that some that more people could die at home if that's their wishes? Well, it would be lovely to think that that's the case. I think it is case specific, but absolutely if there's somebody like you know, a trained person who knows how to facilitate that process and coordinate things and be present, you know, what a wonderful gift. You know, I'm sure if you surveyed, you might have in fact done it. I haven't seen the research, but the question around who would like to, you know, prefer to die at home, most people would have their hand up for that scenario. And most family members would like people to be at home so they feel comfortable and safe and, you know, in, the, in their place of love. I guess if there are practicalities around things like pain management and keeping the fluids hydrated and stuff, but the palliative care teams are very good around that too. So if that can be managed at home and there's certainly a you know, professional person or someone like yourself who's trained to help in that scenario, then absolutely, why not? You know, so pain relief can be set up with little pumps that are automated so that they just continually provide support you can have a little drip under the skin that keeps people hydrated. It's more just if physically they're not comfortable and they're physically not able to be there. And, and so be it if that's the case. But then we've got hospices, which are also, you know, they, most hospices are beautifully set up mm. to help family and, and friends through that process. Yeah. But, yes, I think the choice, you know, like I said, opens a can of worms too around the, you know, euthanasia stuff, the choice to die in our own choosing <laughs> as far as how and when in some degree, or the choice of play, you know, where do we pass is also another, you know, profound mm. choice for people. So, you know, it's all, it's all on the table and there's no doubt that having, you know, somebody like a professional doula who's there to support that, fabulous, you know. I love it. And I, have, I haven't heard about end-of-life doulas, but I've heard about the doulas for midwives and, um, you know, the beginning of life, but not so much the end of life. And when I heard you were doing this, I just thought, wow, that's fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. So knowing that most people in Australia really don't have access to a doctor of integrative medicine like you, and they're going off to their GPs, you know, and they've, they've got cancer, they're dying, there's somebody in their family's dying. What, what are the sort of questions do, that you think they could pose their doctors to get the doctors to understand that they might need something that the doctor can't offer and what might those sort of things be and where could people find that? Uh, well, I would say, to be honest, that a lot of what I do is, or what integrated doctors do, is also in the realm of what well-qualified naturopaths can offer. You know, the difference, I guess, between what I do and what naturopaths offer is that we've got an extra layer to it. So there's more blood tests that I can do. I can use medications for pain relief and, you know, hormones and balancing those things out. But uh, there's plenty of, of naturopaths who actually are very, very good, if not even specialists, at facilitating things like cancer and, and chronic illnesses and that journey. So I think people could certainly uh, seek that because then you're landing in a place where you're, you know, your, your values align. So asking a GP who doesn't either have the time, the expertise or even the interest in that realm to sort of change how they practice, that's not going to work in that scenario. Yeah. Perhaps more inviting the GP to be part of a team and just say, look, you know, I really appreciate all your care that you're offering me. Um, I'm also looking at some of these other things just to help me, you know, be as good as I can be. Uh, I really like us all to work as a team. I think that's important too because sometimes it can get a bit polarised. Sometimes doctors will say, you know, don't do that. It's a waste of time or money, which is just 
stupid statement, but anyway, <laughs> people are too afraid to tell their doctors if they're taking some natural therapies or seeing somebody else. Yep. So I think for me it's really about having a conversation about, you know, I just want to have the best, you know, as a patient, I want to have the best outcome I can have. I want to have the best quality of life I can have. I'm looking at combining, you know, your, your approaches with some other approaches and, uh, you know, I really like us all just to work as a team. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I love that. And yeah. They can stay open and they can stay, you know, uh, aware. And if they're, I often say to people, if your doctor doesn't, you know, if they can't be positive around that stuff, they should at least be neutral. That's probably more professional than being negative, you know. So that's, I guess, the, the conversation. Yeah, I love that. That's beautiful. So... That brings me to some, I suppose, some conversation because there's a lot of listeners out there that are thinking, well, I hear about meditation and how that's good for for me. Meditation might be helpful to reduce stress and to help you sleep and do a whole range of things. But have you had a lot of success with people that have got life-limiting conditions or are terminal or the families around like does is meditation mindfulness some of those strategies like how useful are they and how can, do people get into that that have never done it before and have actually had a bit of an aversion to anything that might seem as a bit alternative or hippy dippy well i think there's there's a lot of very good research around the power of meditation and i guess just to break it down to people People, like, people don't even really know what that means, what meditation actually is. And it's not sitting cross-legged and omming necessarily, although that can be a part of it. <laughs> There's only two aspects to meditation. The first is to focus your mind on one particular thing. Now, for many people, that's actually the breath, so focusing on breathing in and breathing out and how that feels in the nostrils or the rise and fall of your chest. So the breath is powerful because it's always with us and it's always in present time in that it's happening now and now and now. So that's a really good way. And another thing is to focus on sounds around us. So there's, you know, the sound of the birds or any other sound, just to hear them because, again, they're present time and we're focusing on one particular sense. Or it could be a little prayer or a little mantra or it can be a guided meditation. But the whole focus is to just have that one particular thing and when the mind wanders away from that thing, and it will do it, you know, numerous times every minute, when it wanders away and then we realise it's wandered, you just go, oh, well, and bring it back to what we meant to focus on. So there's no judgement. You don't give yourself a hard time. You don't say, I can't do this. It's just shut all that noise down. Just come back to the breath. And then when the mind wanders, come back to the breath. That's all it is. Those two aspects are the tenets of meditation. So anybody can do that anywhere, anytime. And you don't need tools or equipment or anything. It's just mm. the discipline of focusing the mind and when it wanders, bring it back. Start with, you know, three or four or five minutes and then gradually increase that time by a couple of minutes, you know, and over some weeks, if you get up to 20 minutes, ideally twice a day, we know that that level of meditation, that quietening of the mind, 20 minutes twice a day actually impacts on health in a profound way, including life-threatening illnesses. So there's a place in Harvard Uni, the mind-body medicine clinic over there, where they've done lots and lots of studies around that. Uh, Herb Benson is kind of called the father of integrative medicine, if you like, because he did a lot of studies around meditation and their profound impact. So they've got lots of good resources. There's a wonderful place called the Gawler Foundation, G-A-W-L-E-R, Gawler Foundation. They're based in uh, Victoria. Um, but they've got great resources and they have retreats 
which they offer specifically around cancers. They've got ones for MS and other um, sort of illnesses in that sense. So you go to their retreat centre, with a, often with a support person, so a family member or a support person can go with you. And you do a retreat for a week and they just help you to understand and practice meditation and how to eat healthily, how to connect with others, how to focus on what is important. So that's, that's their purpose for existing. There's also the Quest Foundation with Patria King. And she's got a whole lot of information as well. She's in New South Wales. So there's certainly places that are specifically set up to help people with um, cancer or life-threatening illnesses. And there's lots and lots of resources online. But if you don't have the money, if you don't have the capacity to do that stuff, as I said, the resources are in here. It's just putting yourself into that scenario where you just sit and focus on the breath and the mind wanders, just bring it back. Gently, quietly, just be still. Nothing magical happens as such in that moment. It's just the discipline of sitting there, but the body loves it. You know, just feel so calm and relaxed and at peace after that. And that's something that's really powerful for health. You know, if we have a stress levels up here and then we just decrease them through that process, then we're starting from a much lower baseline for the rest of the day as well. So it's not just in the moment feeling calm and relaxed. It's we've got, you know, a bit more space to move up and down through the day without peaking out as much. Oh, I love that. Love that. Do you live remotely or regionally? Do you feel isolated and confused about the way forward when thinking about what next? Maybe you've had a recent diagnosis or you're entering the final stage of your life. Today's technology means we can help you wherever you live. So reach out now to doulaconnections.com.au. All right, Kyle, so a a little bit of a different change of direction for people to think about. What about children? So when you've got children that have got cancers and their parents are freaking out or you know children that can have any condition really whether it's you know a genetic thing or whatever are children different when it comes to death and dying to adults and if so how and then how do you work with the parents you know when they're when they're in that situation so I'm just interested in maybe some stories or some experiences about that that might help people yeah, look, I think it's it's just particularly heartbreaking, isn't it, when it feels like the natural order of things is out of order. You know, some if a child is dying and not living their full life, that feels wrong compared to someone who's, you know, in their late 80s or, you know, whatever. And, you know, still, of course, it's tragically sad, but there's a, a an awareness that that's inevitable and there's a, a rightness in the timing in some ways. So I think that's what's particularly hard, you know, for parents to, you know, better sit with the fact that that just feels wrong in every level. Most children who have life-threatening illnesses are profound little souls, you know. They really are often teaching people lessons of life all around them. And most parents will recognise that as well. So I think it's really, it is hard. It's, It's very much coming to that place of going, okay, well, you know, you, you might want to fight and rile against it, but there's also sometimes you know, nothing that can be done other than just being with the child and loving the child. So if we can get to a place of acceptance, then again it comes back to the joy of the moment and, and living in that. If they're able to, and maybe not even in that moment, it might be later when they're grieving, you know, there are some beautifully profound stories of uh, children and their, and what they have experienced. So I did grab some books before we did this. Do you know Wayne Dyer? Mm. Uh, like he's got a beautiful book. I can see that one. Good yeah, I can. And this is children's astounding recollections of the time before they came to Earth. 
And these are little, these are children who are interviewed and they, they just make statements that are, you know, about life beyond what we know. And, you know, when we're, when we're angry and upset and not wanting to know any of that stuff, it's, you can't focus on that. But when there's time or capacity, then sometimes I'll gently introduce that as well. Just you know, maybe just have a, a bit of a think about this or a read about this because, you know, it's the people left behind that are really grieving and that can be helpful. And most children somehow in their being know that that's their life journey. That's a part of why they're here and what, what their, their journey was for this lifetime. I don't think that helps in the acute grief, but I think it helps in an overall picture sometimes. So, yeah, is it different? I think it just has a lot more emotional charge and tragedy around it all. Mm. But yeah, I think it's different in that way, but the physical process is, you know, is the same. And the grieving is, yeah, is, is hard, you know. But I always encourage people, once someone has passed, to have a, a you know, a, actually have an altar at home with a photo and a candle where you can just quietly go and connect with them every day and, and you know, just somehow have that connection. And it's amazing too how many people will feel the presence of someone once they've passed. Mm. So just, just being quiet enough that you can feel that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So what was the name of that beautiful book, Dr. Coley? Memories of Heaven, Dr. Wayne Dyer and D. Garns, G-A-R-N-E-S. And it's called Children's Astounding Recollections of the Time Before They Came to Earth. Wow, I think that would help a lot of people to read that book. So thank you for that. So my next question is I also know that you've done a fair bit of reading, research and have an interest in near-death experiences and I'm just interested in what's your perspective on that. So I know that I've certainly read all sorts of things but I'm interested about you and what you think about near-death experiences. Are they, are they real or are they not or what do you think? I absolutely think that they're real. I think it's interesting like you know some people or some of the scientists say that it's just you know we have you know an experience that's a neurological thing and then it's nothing to do with afterlife but I've read so much and uh, I'm sure you have too. Like the other book that I'm, I think I've mentioned to you before, but this one here is called Journey of Souls by Dr. Michael Newton. That's just one. I've got a number of other ones here too. But what's profound about his particular thing is that he's a psych, well, he's passed on now, but he was a psychiatrist who did regression analysis. So that's a technique where they take people back to a time of trauma where they can then heal from the trauma and so psychiatrists use that generally to regress back to maybe a childhood experience and help people to identify what happened in the moment and how they can shift their belief or opinion about it. Anyway, he was just doing that work, not expecting or knowing anything more. And he found that what started to happen was he'd ask people to go back to a time in their life when you know, they, their life was under threat or they felt unsafe. And part of that is you then get them to describe what they can see and hear and feel just to try and locate them back in that time. And then what started to happen was people were describing scenes around them that were not from present time. They were back in the 1800s or back in the 1700s or whatever. He just didn't quite understand it, but he went with the process. And the, the people would go back to that time and have the experience. And then as he got more familiar and, and more open to this, he would actually take them through that previous life, if you like, to their point of death, and then he'd ask them, what were your lessons? What was your learning from that experience? What is it that you would bring forward from that experience? 
And so they will sort of get profound, you know, lessons of that. But then the next thing that happened, which is fascinating, again, spontaneously, unexpected, we have no training or understanding of any of this. It took someone to their point of death and asked that question, but rather than answering the question, they started to describe what was happening to them after they died. And they began to describe the experience of uh, meeting with what's called a soul guide and uh, having a review of their life and meeting other loved ones and, you know, the, the profound stories that happen. And then he'd bring them out of trance back into present day. And he did that process with people, you know, 2,000 people before he wrote that book. And regardless of their background or their religion or their belief, they all had almost the same experience of what happened in that transition time. So I think that's fascinating. They're not having near-death experiences, as in they're not in acute trauma. There's no, you know, masses of chemicals flooding their brain or anything. They're lying in a psychiatrist's chair, going into deep relaxation, accessing an experience, and then coming back. So those people who try to talk it into just being a, you know, a flash of chemicals in the brain, mm. that does not explain any of those experiences that those people had and recounted. So, you know, that, that's just a way of, I guess, getting out, away from that whole discussion of, you know, is it real or not? Yeah. But you know, choose to believe what they want to believe. But I think the consistency in the stories, and that's just his book, but there's lots of other books. Probably heard of Samojani. She's a lady. Have you heard of her? So she's done a lot of work. Um, you know, what if this is heaven? And her story is quite profound of, you know, a, a life-threatening illness and her experience on the other side and then coming back and what she remembers. And one of her own fellows in Australia, Proof of Heaven, even Alexander, he's a neurosurgeon who, you know, had no belief around any of that stuff and had his own experience. And, yeah, so there's a lot of information out there and it's up to people if they want to go down that path of, you know, of reading or discovering. But I think... I think there's a lot of comfort that can come from accepting there's a part of us that is actually not the physical being part of us. It's there's a part of us that's an ancient wisdom, and be that a, a soul or a spirit, but there's a part of us that has can sit outside of ourselves and be the observer, and that part of us is what's had this wow. experience before and will have this experience again. And if we can access that somehow, then it's almost like, there can be a profound acceptance of what is, but the challenge is always to make our life count for something and to have meaning. So whatever the scenario is, how do we bring our best selves to it? And how do we, you know, help others as best we can? You know, what is it that motivates us to even be here? I love it's it. to learn love things, it. it's to grow, it's to connect and share and to love. So, yeah. I have loved talking to you today. I have so much respect for you. You're just a shining light. So for me, if people wanted to get into contact with you, Dr. Kylie, what would be the best way for them to do that? That's a good question. Probably I've got a professional page on Facebook, just Dr. Kylie Dodsworth. Message me through there. You know, I can't really give medical advice in those sorts of scenarios, but uh, as far as consultations go, then you know, there, there's some access, but not, not a lot. But what I can do is help to link people into others or just to give you some encouragement on the journey. There's always resources. There's always people around you. Let me put it this way, you know, the, the people we need come into our lives at the right time. So I can't be all things for all people, but I can encourage you to trust that there is just the right person for you if you just put the feelers out for that. So just trust the process. Know that the right people are around you. 
and be open to that. I'd love to offer you an opportunity to come back and talk to us about the medicinal cannabis, if that's because I know that there's a lot of people have told me that they really want to hear more about that. So are you open to that? Yeah, look, I'm certainly happy to have a chat about that. Right. And All right. um, if people are in acute need at the moment, there's a website called cannabisdoctorsaustralia.com might be .au, sorry, I'm not sure, Cannabis Doctors Australia. I'm only mentioning that because there's only some doctors that are able to prescribe the THC component yeah, uh, and they can do that and you can do online consultations with them. So if people are in more of an acute need at the moment, they can look at that website and seek out that care and uh, get access because other you know, standard GPs can do CBD but not THC as yeah. much. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm incredibly grateful for this interview and I'll see you again soon. We hope you found this conversation and information interesting, helpful and empowering with the Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Help us empower others by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. 